2: Virgin Valley Artists Association welcomes you to the Art Box recorded in our beautiful Mesquite, Nevada, and sponsored by the Virgin Valley Artists Association. Our association has something for everyone of all ages. Come and get creative with us at 15 West Mesquite Boulevard, or find us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com or on Facebook as Mesquite Fine Art Center, also on Facebook, the Art Box. <laughs>
0: So here we are today, our first ever outdoors podcast. Welcome to the Art Box. I'm sitting around with Dave Ward and Teresa Skye, S-K-Y-E, and we are at Whitney Pockets, and it's a pretty nice day.
3: Glorious day, glorious day. Yeah.
0: Sun's on us nice and warm.
3: It's a great
4: day. We spent the day looking at petroglyphs and pictographs in Gold Butte National Monument. Just making sure they're protected and people respect them and honor them. And we met some great people. Happy to be here with Steve.
0: And I'm happy to have you guys here. Now, so our listeners know, there might be the occasional bird that flies by. <laughs> there might be the occasional jet that flies by. And we could have a car come by. So, have to deal with it. Um, here we go. So, love you guys. You guys are good friends. We met at... When we both, we've all volunteered at Ash Meadows.
3: Ash Meadows National Wildlife Refuge, where um, Steve and Gwen volunteered. I still volunteer. Dave has done astronomy programs there. Um, Great place to visit. Beautiful springs, 50-plus springs there. Uh, Water in the desert, not to mention fish in the desert, pupfish in the desert. It's an
0: oasis. Mm -hmm.
3: It's a great place, and a lot of people don't know about it. Uh, Just outside of Vegas, about mm, maybe not quite a two-hour drive, so a great Sunday trip, weekend trip, over to Ash Meadows National Wildlife Refuge.
0: Yes, one of our favorite places. Now... Teresa, we knew you because you were doing um, you were doing hikes there, you were leading hikes. I only met Dave when you did a moon presentation one night. <laughs> and I learned, and I wasn't in your I was over looking out of my telescope, but I was listening to you with one ear. and I learned more about the moon that night than I ever did in school.
4: And for the life of me, I cannot remember a thing I said about the moon, although I, I probably know enough about the moon to talk about it for a while.
0: Oh, I bet you can. Who wants to start? Want to tell us a little bit about yourselves?
4: Yeah, well, I'm I'm gonna start. And I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, way back on the east. And our family had something that very few people had back in those days, back in the 1950s. We had a a really nice telescope. It stood about eight feet tall. It was all made out of brass. It was made in London, England in the 1880s. And uh, when I was five years old, I looked through that telescope, I saw the rings of Saturn and the moons of Jupiter and the craters on the moon, and that changed my whole life. I didn't know it at the time, but it did. It changed my whole life. I've made a lifelong hobby out of astronomy and also a bit of a profession of being a, what I call a professional stargazer, and I've gone out with groups. Looking at the stars, uh, either through a telescope or not, doesn't matter. Uh, There's a lot to see up there just with the naked eye. But I still have that telescope today. It's uh, about 140 years old. I get it out occasionally, although I've graduated (laughs) up to bigger and better telescopes. Um, When I was in high school, I made my own ground the optics myself, have used that telescope for many, many years. This is supposed to be an art podcast. I think for me, my art is showing people the stars and uh, letting them know the setting that the Earth is in. We, you know, We live on this beautiful, beautiful planet here at Gold Butte, a prime example of that. We were looking at just the incredible rocks and the veins of different colors running through the rocks, a lot of sandstone here, and of course the uh, the art that's here left by ancient people hundreds, maybe even a thousand years ago. But what we often ignore is the bigger setting of the earth and how that setting allows us to be here on this planet. And uh, if you go out... Outside at night, Uh, this winter, we're talking, this is November 2022. If you go outside at night, you can see that setting. You can see the other planets that we share this solar system with. You can see our moon, our incredible moon that orbits around the Earth. Go outside and... and, uh, Don't touch the table, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) That's the number one rule. I've broken it already. Go outside and, and look, look into the southwest. You'll see Saturn, uh, that beautiful planet with the rings. Then up higher in the south is much brighter Jupiter. And then coming up later after sunset in the east is reddish Mars, one of our closer neighbors in the, in the solar system that's what we can see right now is part of our setting. And uh, what we don't realize is how far away these things are. Uh, To uh, go to Saturn, if you took your 737 jet that we fly across the country in, going to Saturn would take about 200 years to get there. So be sure to bring along some snacks to eat books to read. It's a long ways out. I've always been impressed with how our solar system works and how it works It allows us to be here on this planet. We're just the right distance from our own personal star, the sun. It uh, orbits real evenly and nicely. It turns at a really perfect rate for us 24 hours just think if it took 48 hours to make one revolution well that'd be a long time to sleep in bed at night and a long time to stay awake in the day of course we've evolved here that that works just fine for us but like a lot of people don't know that without jupiter where it is out there beyond us we probably wouldn't be able to live on this planet why is that? Because Jupiter, being the biggest planet and the heaviest planet, acts like a shield from incoming objects of mass destruction. Protects the Earth from asteroids, from comets that might come in and hit the Earth and destroy it. In the last 20 years, we've, we've actually watched three objects hit Jupiter. Two of them would have flattened a whole state if they had hit the United States. The third one, Comet Shoemaker-Levy number 9, would have destroyed all life on Earth. It's just amazing that Jupiter is in the right place to protect us. Then there's our moon. Did you know that without our moon, we wouldn't be able to live here on this planet? Because the moon steadies the Earth in its orbit. And in its tilt, without the moon, the Earth would wobble around like a wobbly top, which would create climate change from hell. And we wouldn't be able to live here.
0: Hey, Dave, can I ask when you're saying the wobbly, and I know that, but I've never thought about the other planets. So the other planets that Mars does have a moon or doesn't have a moon?
4: Mars has two very small moons.
0: Do they do anything with the wobble?
4: No, they don't help with that. Phobos and Deimos, fear and terror. That's what those two little... They're only like 10 miles in diameter. Our moon is a 1,000 miles in diameter. It's the biggest moon in the solar system in comparison with the size of the planet. And that makes it possible for us to be here. And most people don't think about that or know about that. I find it incredibly interesting, all the factors that add in to making life possible on this
0: planet. I I was just going to ask, does Mars wobble?
4: Yes, all the planets wobble. Yes. And and the Earth does too, but we wobble in a real stately fashion. Imagine a top spinning on the floor, the tabletop. It spins real rapidly, often makes a real slow wobble. And our Earth does that. It takes 26,000 years to do one wobble. And that's okay because it takes 26,000 years. But imagine as the top winds down, it starts wobbling all over everywhere. That would be a problem because, oh, like for a million years, the North Pole might point directly at the sun, which means it would be constantly bathed in sunlight. It would be blazing hot and nothing could live there whereas the whole southern hemisphere would be in c- continuous darkness a giant block of ice and n- nothing would be able to live there either and then that situation might flip and so this is why i say it would create climate change that would not allow us to uh, be here on the planet uh, just think we've been a life has been evolving here for three-and-a-half billion years on Earth. And the Earth has managed to keep conditions just right, like a hen sitting on her eggs, keeping them just warm, not too warm, not too cold. And that's, that's been the story of the Earth. We've had just conditions that have remained perfect for several billion years, and it's allowed life to evolve and evolve and culminate in us and now what are we doing we're destroying the thing that that nursed us over all these years Well,
0: remember that the dinosaurs lasted how many billion years or million years they last millions of years and they weren't as smart as us no so you think we're outsmarting ourselves
4: i think we have a lot of smarts but we also have a lot of stupidity and i think lately that stupidity is what seems to be Taking hold. But anyway, yeah, I'm real impressed with the setting that the Earth sits in in our solar system and also in the whole universe. Uh, We have a, a universe that allows us to be here. We have a universe that has atoms that can make planets and stars, and we take that for granted, but actually, astronomers and physicists tell us that the chances of this universe being here are very, very slim. Uh, Imagine flipping a coin, and it comes up heads every time. And you flip it over and over, it comes up heads. Flip it all day long, and it comes up heads every time. Imagine what a small chance that would be, and if that ever happens, to you, I would suggest going into Vegas and trying out your luck and put use to that small chance. But imagine flipping a coin over and over for not years, but centuries and millennium and billions of years and even trillions of years. Physicists and astronomers say it's that kind of chance that our universe has to be here that can support stars, planets, and life. It's like flipping a coin for trillions of years and having it come up heads every time. I find that kind of stuff amazing. Maybe people think it's boring and stupid, but I just think, how can you possibly walk through your life and be angry at petty things, mad that you uh, forgot to wash the pants you want to wear that day, or, or whatever when the chances of us being here are incredibly slim. And astronomers used to think, "Okay, you know, there's billions of planets out there. Some of them are bound to have life. But now more and more people are thinking, you know, there's probably not that many planets out there like Earth that can have life. And that we can be here. So do you think we'll ever find one of them in our lifetime? I doubt it. I doubt it very seriously. Now, when I'm talking about life, I think simple life is easy for the universe to come up with. Little one-celled critters, bacteria, amoeba, things like that. I, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if we find evidence of that kind of life on Mars. Europa, one of the moons of Jupiter, has this big frozen over ocean of water, and we know that down underneath the ice, which is maybe 10 miles thick, that there is liquid water, and it's quite possible we might find some simple life down in a place like that. Also, Enceladus, one of the moons of Saturn, I think is quite has that same frozen ocean situation. I think we might have life there, but Life like we have on this planet, advanced life, this very rich, abundant life of different species of plants and animals, I think that is incredibly rare. And uh, I think we are very, very fortunate uh, to be uh, on a planet like this. And of course, that throws in the whole idea of will we ever meet the little green men in flying saucers? personally, in my opinion, I don't think we ever will, because if they are out there, they're so far away, they'll never be able to get here, and we'll never be able to get there. So anyway, I'm going to take a little break right now, because my mouth is getting dry.
0: <coughs> so you're saying that, I think of, was it Edward Drake, who had the, um, the equation of what the chances were that we would ever meet up with Intelligent life.
4: Yes, the Drake equation.
0: The Drake equation.
4: Right, very famous equation. Personally, I think it's rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's my own personal opinion. Although I share that with other people who know something about the stars. Um, the last time I heard the Drake equation explained was up on the rim of Yubihebe Crater last winter. Wind was blowing. Uh, about 40 miles an hour, and our astrobiologist had taken us up there. We were looking at microbes under rocks, or where they would live under rocks. And she had the Drake equation written out on a little piece of 8 by 10 paper and was explaining it to us. Now, I, I knew all about it, but other people on this trip probably did not have a clue. But I thought it was absolutely hilarious that we had that setting for the Drake equation which encompasses the whole universe really basically
0: a couple of years ago I volunteer for um, Northern Arizona University the uh, division of forestry and it's around bio crust and I went out with um, a couple of their biologists and they were showing me some spots that I was going to start to monitor down by Lake Mead mm-hmm. and it was you know, they're, they're bio-crust people. They're lichen. And they started talking about how much they love lichen and how that, if lichen is ever found on Mars or someplace else, how excited they will be. But everybody else will be, what? We don't care about that. Here's how exciting it will be to find lichen somewhere.
4: That's right, Yep, People can get excited about their own thing. But... One thing my whole astronomical interest has evolved into is how to relate this passion to other people. And um, as I say, I started looking at the stars when I was five years old and I never, never, ever stopped. And as a teenager, I found that my interest in astronomy had very practical implications. It was a great way to get a teenage girl to go outside at night with me, and uh one line I would use is uh, "Hey, baby, let's go outside, and I'll show you Venus, the planet of love, and uh
3: now that you mention that, I seem to recall
0: you use that,
3: <laughs> probably not first, the planet of love I don't then. think you said, "Hey, baby, <laughs> <laughs> but it was walking out and looking at the stars and yeah."
4: Yeah, you're in the dark, you're out there, the two of you alone. You know, all kinds of things can happen.
0: You can.
3: (laughs) You never knew. No.
4: (laughs) (laughs) But then it evolved in other directions, too. And um, I remember as a kid, my dad, who was a minister, often seemed to be lost in thought. He said, hey, Dad, what are you thinking about? And he would always invariably say, I'm thinking about the infinity of the universe and the depravity of man. And I don't know about the depravity of man point of view. I I don't think we're really depraved. But the infinity of the universe, that's something that stuck with me. And as a high school student, I built my own telescope, ground out the optics myself, I turned it in for a physics class project when I was in the 12th grade. I think I got an A on that project. Nobody else had made a telescope. It took me a a year and a half to make it. Uh, Grinding the optics out by hand is quite a task.
0: And all you got was an A? I would expect more than that for grinding out optics, okay?
4: (laughs) Yeah, no, nobody else was into that kind of thing back then, and not very many people are now either. As an adult, I found myself being asked to give star parties. I, I did a lot for the public schools in the area where we lived, and I love showing the kids the stars. I, and I, I would take out that old 140-year-old telescope that I would first looked through when I was five years old and show school kids the rings of Saturn, the moons of Jupiter— And a lot of the kids would just go, huh, you know, that's interesting, or maybe not even that's interesting. But every now and then, you'd have a kid that I I could see the skyrockets going off in their head. And I just knew that this was really something special to see something like Saturn, which is almost a billion miles away through a telescope. Nowadays, of course, we have these wonderful pictures taken by the Hubble telescope and the newly launched James Webb telescope, and they're just astounding to look at. But for me, there is no substitute for actually looking at something through a telescope, because say you're looking at another galaxy, like the Andromeda galaxy, and those photons which have been traveling across an unbelievable, vast void of space for, well, in the case of Andromeda Galaxies, two and a half million years. It's taken for them to get here and to actually have those photons created in the cores of the stars in that galaxy come and hit your eyes and interact with your physical body. To me, that's a connection. With the stars and the realms up above that you never get looking at a picture on your phone or on your computer or whatever. Just having those actual photons hit. And I try to impress that on on people when I take them out under the stars and show them stuff. It's like, do you know how long the light's been coming from this star we're looking at? I think back to the dark ages. Well, yeah, that's when it left that star. And now it's coming and hitting your eyes, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years later. To me, that's absolutely amazing. Uh, and I think I, other people can appreciate that too.
0: Well, you had to bring up photons because I love photons. You love photons. Oh, okay. But if it wasn't
4: for photons, we wouldn't be seeing any of this out we here. We would right not now. be seeing any, any of this. Of it. No,
0: so, of it. But none the of photons other. journey, what does it take? Like, I think 400 years for them to leave the the center of the sun to make it to the core. Maybe it's 4,000 years, but it takes a
4: while for them to work their way. Some people think it takes 100,000 years. Even though those photons are traveling the speed of light, it takes them maybe as much as 100,000 years from where they were created in the center of the sun to the outside edge. They bounce around in there for 100,000 years. To me, that's just absolutely astounding Uh, imagine being in a crowded bar where everybody's up and dancing around and you're trying to get out to the door you can't go this way and you can't go that way and you bump into somebody here and you bump into somebody there hopefully you can get out before a hundred thousand years but that's kind of the situation of a photon in the middle of the sun or the stars and then it takes them just to travel across that space it takes them closest star we can see uh, out this time of year. If you look up into the southeast, you might see Sirius. That's the brightest star in the sky. And that takes eight and a half years for that photon to get from the surface of Sirius to here. But the Andromeda galaxy, which you can see without uh, binoculars or a telescope, that's two and a half million years. So there's a lot of relief out there. So when you're looking up in the sky, it looks two-dimensional, but it's really a very deep three-dimensional thing we're looking into.
0: It's the best history museum ever. Yes. There's another airplane, if people are wondering.
4: <laughs> coming into Vegas. <laughs> Probably coming into Vegas.
0: That's the one one problem I have out here shooting dark skies, is uh, this is an air carter. And all yes. until about 2 a.m. choop
4: choo, 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 Right, yeah. You know, last evening at sunset, I was looking. There were eight or ten jets out there. Some of them coming into Vegas. Some of them leaving. It was just like, wow, that's interesting. You can trace all their paths back, and they all go to the same place—the Vegas Airport. Anyway, that's that's another interesting thing of looking at the the sky. Anyway, uh, I have shown people the star in Death Valley National Park, which is one of my favorite stargazing places. It's very, very dark out there, amazingly dark. When your eyes get adjusted to the darkness, you can see Las Vegas glow, but it doesn't really affect you too much. You can even see Los Angeles, but it doesn't affect you too much. But the Milky Way, that's just out there. That's the galaxy in which we live. That's just beautiful.
0: And, and my wife always likes to tell the story. We would go to Panamint Springs Resort, and one of the owners there, he was talking to us one night about some German tourists, and they asked him, how come there's always this cloud in the sky right there? And he said he had to think a little bit and said, "Well, that, no, that's not a cloud. That's the Milky Way. And the German tourist was <clears throat> astounded. They've never seen it. They had yeah. never seen
4: it. Most of the world, you
0: cannot see those those things.
4: Oh like the zodiacal light. Now, that's something we see in Death Valley. And yeah. I, sho- I show that to people. <laughs> and and I'll, I'll often ask, you know, after I've pointed it out and explained to them what it is, have you ever seen this before? Nobody's ever seen it before. Have you ever heard of it before? Nobody's ever heard. It's an interesting phenomena. It's this beam of light that comes up off the western horizon after sunset. And it's dust particles in our solar system little tiny dust particles being uh backlit by the sun
0: and i've been able to i think i found out about that from you and i was able to to photograph it you know one of of the other things is i would shoot my milky way and i would do time lapse and i would see this green in there and there would be this green, and I didn't realize what that was until recently when I, I did a little research. You want to talk about that?
4: What was the green thing, Steve? <laughs>
0: Are we talking
4: the green men from Mars or, or what? No, what kind of light is that? <laughs> Z- the zodiacal light?
0: No, it's not. And it's, um, it, it's, it's because, um, and I won't put this in, but it, it's, it's because our atmosphere lights up
4: right yeah right. so
0: at night and there's a name for it
4: and i can't think of that name but it's the stars uh lighting up the atmosphere of the earth the dim light of the stars lighting up the atmosphere yes. of the earth that it, it makes the sky actually you, we think about it being totally black and, at night but it's not it's not completely
0: the green light i'm talking about is called air glow basically it never gets truly dark at night because of an effect called air glow Airglow is similar in color to the aurora, but it doesn't occur in just the polar region. While the aurora is light released by the interaction between magnetosphere and the solar wind, airglow is a form of chem luminescence. This is this thin veil of light that surrounds the planet because the atmosphere glows in the dark. And and I wouldn't see that until I do a Mm time-lapse. What's wrong with my photographs? Why is there this green? It's not bright or anything, but you can see this green moving out there.
4: Right, right. And and,
0: and that's what it was.
4: Isn't that interesting? Yeah. There's always something to see when you look up, particularly when you look up at night. In the day, there is, too. But at night, there's always something to see up there. Uh, One thing that seen a couple of times from death valley it's called a lithium flare no an iridium flare an iridium flare and um, when we're lucky enough to see one i often ask people "Have have you ever seen one of these before no do you have you ever heard of one of these before no they never heard of it what it is it's uh satellites there's a whole class of communication satellites called the Iridium Constellation of Satellites. They have these big antennas on them, because if you are talking on your cell phone, you're probably talking through one or more of those satellites up there. Well, every now and then, they reflect a glimpse of sunlight down to Earth. And if you're lucky, they may hit you. And these glimpses are not really big. They're maybe only a half mile or a mile across but um, if you go online to a website called heavens above they actually have predictions of when and where to see these things and so often i would when i get to a place i'm going to stargaze i would go online and, and look is any any of these are going to hit where i am and every now and then yeah oh yeah there is going to be one they look like almost like a meteor except they don't streak across the sky it's just a big flash of light, really bright, brighter than any star or planet, for just a second.
0: And I would catch them on my time lapse. Right. And I would look at it and say, oh, there's a meteor. Mm-hmm. But it'd be a short trail. It'd be really short. And I started looking up in the iridium flare. And I heard that they were retiring most of the iridium fleet. So I have hardly caught any more lately. mm
4: they're still up there. They're holding them up there as spares. they new. They've got a new version that doesn't have a big antenna on it, so it doesn't tend to reflect as much light. But you can sporadically see them, even though they're not controlled anymore, so they're not predictable anymore. They still are up there. You just happen to be lucky enough to catch one.
0: Yeah, interesting. This is your passion. What did you do for a living?
4: I owned a whitewater river rafting business for many years and guided people down whitewater rivers up in the <laughs> northwest, uh, which is, I guess, part of the whole thing of the earth is just an incredible place. And I find rivers totally beautiful and fascinating. and. Uh, there's, To me, nothing like going down a big set of rapids and looking at the symmetry of those waves and how they make the boat go down the river. And you have to work with those waves in the river to not get flipped over or something like that. I did that and also built cabinets. I was a custom cabinet builder for many many years. Astronomy and showing people the wonders of the stars, that's been my real passion.
0: And, and that's good that you've been able to keep your passion. But from five years old, it's, it's very interesting. We interview people, and it's not many people that knew their passion at five years old.
4: At five years old, I knew I loved what I was seeing. I probably didn't know where all it would take me, but it's just been amazing uh, where it has taken me over the years, and and showing people the stars, showing them something that's right in front of their eyes that they never knew was there or understood, had any idea what it was all about.
0: I'm sure happy that because it hasn't been that long that I've been interested, you know, listening to you reading. There's plenty on TV.
3: You think you think there's been a, a recent um, interest in, in astronomy more than in the past? or,
4: I, I think so. I think the Hubble telescope spurred a, a deep interest with all the wonderful pictures that it, it has shown us. Astronomers were predicting, even the famous physicist Stephen Hawking, who's now gone, he predicted that the Hubble telescope would really tell us about the origins of the universe and how it all began and It just showed us it was a lot bigger than we ever thought it was. And now we've got the James Webb Telescope up there. I'm sure you've been seeing pictures online that it's taken. And it's gone to a whole nother level. I don't think we still really understand the whole universe. It's something uh, maybe someday we will, maybe we won't. I, I, I wonder if the human mind is capable, of really understanding who we are and where we are.
0: Well, we certainly live in a very good time. Of learning, I was going to say we live in a very good time. But some things are good, some things are bad. But I think the three of us are always having a good time. Yeah, that's the main thing. Because, because we're always looking up.
4: Yeah, look up there now. Beautiful clouds. We're going to have a great sunset. We might even see Venus right after sunset. I don't know. There's a few hazy clouds over there that might block it. But, yeah, there's. that's true. We, we always um, – can enjoy the beauties of the earth and the beautiful setting that the earth is in.
0: And we certainly got to see some beauty today with our hike. Mm, and absolutely. Even though we've seen it, although we found new things today.
3: There's there's always something new to see, yeah. always something to observe. Dave was just saying yesterday, he feels, you, you felt like, it was almost like the first time you'd been here to Gold Butte, even though we've been here many, many times. Maybe it's the lighting that's different. Maybe it's the, it's pretty green right now after the big rains. So. Yeah, we've,
0: we've had a good rain here. Uh,
3: flowers are actually still blooming. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's like a fantasy world in some ways. It's just so gorgeous. And
4: so many people just say, oh, the, the desert, you know. There's nothing in the desert. Oh my gosh, there's so much out here in the desert. Teresa and I love to walk through the desert and every time we see something just amazing, something new, something different, something unexpected, never fail to find something
3: incredible. I mean, just last night, again, we've been here many times and we've camped in the same spot many times and looked around us at these same hills and mountains and vistas. But the sunset was gorgeous. Um, The lighting was gorgeous. We watched the space station overhead. We kept watching out for Venus. You know, or, there's you don't need TV. You don't you don't need to, your phone work in front of your face. It's uh, there's enough out there to keep keep you occupied, keep you interested, keep you questioning. Lots of questions come to mind. Curiosity. Yeah, and
0: it's the f- the famous Stephen Hawking quote. He said, "Take time to look up." Don't look down at your feet, and I've kind of replaced that and said Stephen Hawking said, "Don't look down at your device."
4: <laughs> yeah, the archaeologist today would disagree
3: with you. They were her thing was to look down. To look, at her. Always
4: look at your feet. There's look
0: something the- on the ground that's interesting.
4: <laughs> well, we
0: found a little tarantula today. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Oh, he you, was great. Yeah, you were ahead oh, of us. You yeah. missed the tarantula. Oh, I wondered.
3: I saw you guys back there looking at something. Oh, yeah.
4: Awesome. Cute little. Like the size of the one we saw the other
0: day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 What do we got, a, an airplane or a car? A car, a car going by. <laughs> we get
4: around pretty good with our two-wheel drive. <laughs> it's high clearance. <laughs>
0: you do, and I like to tell a story because I just got that toe strapped. If you remember, we were in Mudwash. Yes. And, oh, yeah. and oh, you, yeah. you had, we I think, yeah, your three-quarter ton pickup mm-hmm. truck. Just
3: the same truck,
0: yeah. Is it the same truck? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Got okay. stuck. In the same. And, and then you and i we we dug it out and it got stuck more and five, i think finally it was down to the axle so i took out my brand new toe strap hooked it up to you put it in four-wheel drive low and poof yeah came right out Pull, yeah pulled, just pulled you right, pulled, out. Pulled us
3: right out and yeah. we have a we carry a toe strap with us now yeah right yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, a, and a shovel <laughs>
0: Yeah, the things we need to do in the desert.
4: Yeah, yeah, you never know. You got to be prepared. You got to be prepared.
0: Well, Dave, thank you very much. And thank you, Steve. I, I just, I, I'm sitting here mesmerized listening to you talk about the skies. you know, the one thing we didn't talk about was that you were an author. We, we got to tie art in here somehow, <laughs> Teresa. So you were an author, and I read your first book, and uh-huh. it was good. It was very good, and it was science fiction. Or yes. was it?
4: It's... <laughs> yeah, I guess any science fiction book, it depends on your frame of mind, it could be real or, or not. Now, I... So if the universe is in infinite, there's room for a lot of stuff to happen. In fact, there's room for everything that the human mind can possibly imagine is actually happening out there. It's real. And so every crazy Uh, sci-fi book you read, every horror movie you stayed up late watching by yourself when nobody else is in the house and you wish like heck you hadn't have watched it, it's real. It's actually happening somewhere in that infinite universe. So, And I definitely believe this book I I wrote, uh, which I admit is kind of a strange book, but it is—it's real, and it felt real coming into me. I felt like I was tapping into something that was really happening, and it's—it's uh, it's been a real fun experience. Now I'm—I'm I'm writing a prequel and a sequel to this book. There, maybe one more, maybe two more books are going to follow, but uh, it's a journey about through the stars—a journey of of very unlikely astronauts finding themselves in a spaceship way out in the middle of nowhere, so far away that not even our sun is visible. And they're trying to figure out why they're there, who they are, where they're going. And I I feel like that's kind of our whole life's journey is discovering who we are and why we are here. What's our purpose, if there is a purpose? And, uh, yeah, thank you for mentioning that book. I also write a monthly column for a newspaper, a small newspaper up in Washington State. And that's about astronomy and uh, things you can see up in the sky and weird stuff that maybe you can't see but maybe you want to know about. So, you,
0: you want to uh, tell us where we can pick up your book?
4: My book is on Amazon.
3: What's the name of it?
4: It's called (laughs) Dream Wanderers by David Ward. Be ready to hold on to your hat. And my column I write about astronomy, I guess you could call it, we call it a column, but nowadays probably we call it a blog. That's in a newspaper called the Metal Valley News, and the name of the column is called The Naked Eye. Thank you, okay. Steve.
0: The Naked Eye. Thank you, Dave. Great being here. I, 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 You know, I could just sit and listen to you talk for hours.
4: <laughs> well, so, I don't know if I can talk for oh, hours. I, you know what?
0: I, I can talk for hours. I have a sneaky suspicion you can also talk for hours. It's yeah, always I always talk for hours. It's always good to get us talkers together. <laughs> Teresa,
3: hey,
0: you want to chime in here? And and everybody knows that we we flipped a coin, and and Dave lost, and Teresa said (laughs) you go first.
3: I deferred. Uh, Yeah, my name is Teresa Sky, as Steve said, S-K-Y-E, and that name came, (laughs) it's a made-up name, and uh, when I was divorced several years ago and had a chance to... Do something different, change my name. I uh, kind of de- uh, debated what I wanted, but I knew it had to. It should be something connected to nature. So I went through, you know, various ideas with friends. And like at the time, I did a lot of fly fishing. So I thought about Teresa Trout was a possibility, or uh, I don't know. Anyway, you had
0: infinite, <laughs> infinite. Teresa. We talk about infinity. Yeah, I remember. Infinite choices. Teresa,
3: I, I went to Yellowstone quite a bit back then, and there were different places in Yellowstone. Teresa Lamar, you know, Lamar Valley, Teresa Yellowstone, whatever. Anyway, Teresa Sky won. It seemed the easiest, and uh, and it's worked out. And the connection with nature, and that I guess is my connection with art, connection with life is nature. I don't know, I I grew up in Michigan and we didn't do we we grew up in an urban area and didn't do a lot of out. we did outdoor stuff, outside stuff, but um, went once, uh, you know, summer two weeks for a cabin up north and did some things there, but um, really it wasn't until probably out of high school that I really got into hiking and being outdoors. I joined a um, climbing club uh in the uh, Detroit area, outdoor club. Uh and that I think that's really what got me going and uh made some friends there that are uh, lifelong friends. From there just spent really all summers as much as I could being outdoors.
0: And and you and you go back? You go back every year to uh Michigan, right? And Well, my whole family is there now.
3: My now. Um, not so much hiking. <laughs> my mom is 98 years old, and uh, so I go to spend time with her, and uh, there's a lot of family to visit. So not so much hiking. Did a lot of, um, in Michigan, hiking and kayaking. Kayaking was the big thing that I did quite a bit of, and hi- kayaking the Great Lakes up into Canada, uh, Lake Superior, and... Um, and spread that into doing some in Maine and Florida also. But uh, wonderful memories of um, kayaking on Lake Superior. Yeah. So I, I actually worked, and I think we have this in common. you too? Worked for AT&T.
0: That's right, you did, didn't you? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry.
3: I. <laughs> no, I'm not sorry because I have a <laughs> a pension and uh i had a pretty good <laughs> retirement kind of disappeared a little bit but it was it was good to me it was a good good gig i decided uh let's see i guess mid 30s to make a change of career and went into teaching and that was a definitely a good decision mostly because <laughs> it gave me summers off and it, it allowed me to explore my passion for nature more and, um, now, was
0: all this in Michigan? Yeah, Okay. still
3: in Michigan. But uh, I started to go out west in the summers. I would have my car packed practically the last day of school and ready to roll out to mostly, at, initially it was Montana and Yellowstone National Park. Took classes in Yellowstone. There's a, it used to be called the Yellowstone Institute for many, many years. Did writing classes, uh, art classes there. Uh, tracking classes whatever you wanted and it was always the best people who taught those classes spent yeah a lot of, just practically my whole summers really out in Yellowstone and came back to teach and did that for many years and so that introduced me to the west which what a change what a and change it's in inter-
0: my- it's interesting that you say that because you met Lois today uh-huh and and she was a teacher um back in Long Island oh
1: okay. and
0: I think she would have her car packed the last day of school. <laughs> and you know, she tells me about her story. She would go to Alaska. She would always come out west and by herself.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, she I would spend all myself. that
0: time hiking. Uh-huh. and
3: yeah, yeah, long 14-hour days of driving or sleeping maybe in the car or whatever. But um, then I, I actually worked, uh, did a little Volunteer work with the Yellowstone and Yellowstone doing helping on backpacking trips, but one trip out west took me to Washington because I was going to go to Alaska also and meet a friend there and uh, I ran into this guy at a campground of all places this guy meaning Dave here and uh, uh, He handed me his line
0: Oh, it was the Venus A couple different lines.
3: No, no, that was a little later. This line was, I was, I don't know, I was busy doing something and he came up to me and he said, what did you say, is is that a a thrush I hear? (laughs) The bird of (laughs) love. I I don't know. He must recognize something in me that would fall for that or something. But anyway, I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) Don't bug me. (laughs) 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 So uh, anyway, um, let's see. Then that evening, I was sitting out again quietly doing something, and he came over and, and started talking to me. And next morning, he um, left his rafting uh, brochure on my car Oh. in the windshield. He was on his way to Seattle, so our paths <laughs> were crossing. And I stayed in the area a couple of days. We actually saw each other again. Was it the net, right away the next day or two? You were coming back again from Seattle at an ice cream shop that used to be in the area, um, Cascade Farms. And that, you know, that was interesting. We, he, I had done a hike, and I went to get ice cream, and he was coming back again, so we ran into each other again.
0: And, he, and you, you guys didn't set it up via Messenger or Facebook or text, <laughs> did you? We didn't have that kind of thing back
4: then. It was ancient history.
3: And that was, what, 2000, you better date. Five, five, yeah, I think two thousand five. So I went on to Alaska, but so he had left his his brochure with the, you know, I knew his, how to get in touch with him when we had met and everything, um, and uh, I went on to Alaska. I was actually going with another guy to Alaska, and then I came back. and My sister lives in Washington, and and I said, should I get in touch with this guy? You know, should I? You know, he lives in Winthrop, Metau Valley. I could go back that way or not, because you know, I was driving back to Michigan. And she's like, yeah, yeah, go do it. So I did it. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess the rest is history. And, and that's when, when I got to Winthrop, and he invited me to his house, and we just chatted. He took me out, and looked, we looked at the stars that night. So.
0: No, so, that no—that's your story. What was Dave doing? Was he was he anxiously sitting by the phone?
4: No, what? I was just I was just hoping to have another customer come down on one of my raft <laughs> trips.
3: <laughs>
0: I'm <laughs> just kidding. I've never heard that one. Do you want to smack him? <laughs> Kinda. <laughs>
3: uh, well, anyway, we kept long distance. We kept in touch yeah. for uh, phone conversations for oh, I don't know. Couple of years, year and a half, when I packed up and moved, moved to the Mattel Valley to Winthrop.
0: Now Did you guys see each other? The did, did you go yes. back out oh, there the next summer? She
3: came to Mich
4: Yeah, I came to Michigan. Okay, uh, and uh-huh. you came out just for a, a summer.
3: Yeah. The one summer. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was mm-hmm. some back and forth, but uh, yeah. So we packed up with a cat, two cat, no one cat. Anyway, uh, two cats, <laughs> two cats. And all my stuff, and uh, and then lived in Washington for several years. Again, I taught school. I taught um, Montessori school in Washington, which is a great way to to kind of realize your creative creativity. Montessori schools—they're so creative. You have to be so and teaching preschool kids. You have to be so think out of the box and and do things differently and and think of different ways to engage them. So I think that when I think about it, I think that Montessori experience really really kind of gave me a, a kick in the butt as far as my creativity went. But continuing on, you know, on with hiking, lots and lots of hiking, hike the most of the Pacific Crest Trail. That's what we do. We we do a lot of a lot of hiking. So when I think when I hear him talking about the stars and, and the sky and everything, I feel like I'm—I mean, he loves to hike, too, but that I'm more here. I'm more of, of this earth and grounded. <laughs> we continue to do a lot of traveling, do a lot of hiking, do—see what we can see, um, observations. But as far as art goes and nature, I think those two are so interconnected for me when I look at the patterns of a, nature— the colors, um, the desert, like Dave was saying, really speaks to us for those for that kind of thing. For really observing the openness of it, um, the night sky. We were in Washington all summer, and we missed the night sky. We we'd see a star, and it's like, oh my, oh, there's a star, there's a star.
0: No, oh, because of the clouds.
3: <laughs> well, not the clouds so much. The, the trees.
0: trees. Oh, that's true. Because the, the summer
3: where we are in Washington, the summer it's actually. Pretty nice weather and pretty clear skies, but you're just not in the uh, is open in areas. This is uh, those
0: pesky trees.
3: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Love, love the Pacific Northwest. Love it down here. We feel so fortunate to have both places. We do go to Washington every summer. Um, we have a piece of property on the Skagit River that we live on and enjoy, and we love it here in the desert. What brought us down to the desert is pretty much Death Valley National Park. Um, it was an area we could get to. I was still teaching school and we could get to um, quickly from Washington and you're guaranteed pretty darn good weather in Death Valley uh, when it comes to like spring break, like March. Um, it's always going to be nice. So we came down several times and loved it and decided that maybe this was a place we wanted to live. So. Dave came down, I was teaching, and he actually came and um, bought a house for us. Bought it. I never saw it until... Oh, really? When...
4: With your money. <laughs> yeah, Not right. with my money, your
3: money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I trusted him mm. enough to pick the house, and it's...
0: And you're still in that it's house. It's great,
1: yeah.
3: It was perfect. It, it is perfect. We love our house. We love the, the area around us. Uh, we live in Pahrump, Nevada. Um, we feel like it's a great spot to get to Utah. We can get to Utah in three hours we can get to Eastern Sierras, which we love in about three hours Mojave Desert, Death Valley. Um, just there's so much here, so much to explore. I, I never guess I never, I never thought I'd live in the desert, you know living in Michigan, living in Washington and down here but I think,
0: and all of our relatives and friends, from wherever they're like what
4: <laughs> they think we're crazy yeah what's wrong and with we you? probably
3: are but that's okay
0: what's wrong with you i hear there's a drought out here I hear there's here there's hardly any rain yeah. but it's pretty
3: yeah until you're here i don't think you realize what the desert is like and 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 the colors of the desert even this time of year the colors are phenomenal i was in ash meadows uh two weeks in a row and the the golds and the you know, the ash trees and the just different variations of light and it's just phenomenal. So I encourage anybody out there who hasn't been to the desert in the winter months to come because the light is fantastic.
0: And I get to follow you guys all the way up to Washington every year. You know, some people don't like Facebook. Oh, don't like oh. Facebook. I <laughs> could Recent and Dave put up the good pictures of what they're doing in Washington, and I get to think, boy, if I was up there, I could be cool too, <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
3: it's we do have you know Washington and especially where we are now, which is considered the rainy side, is rainy up till June, but then we have two and a half months, three months of really gorgeous weather seventy five eighty uh just yeah really really nice
0: teresa tell us about your art i I know you're a photographer and i believe that's how we met maybe no maybe i guess it was ash meadows
3: but i think it was ash meadows but i also remember uh being introduced to your vimeo coldplay oh okay which is because what's the name of that song star oh sky full of stars sky full of stars yeah uh, and if you haven't seen that one, guys, look it up because it's great. Uh, that, yeah, that made me love that song. But I was introduced to that and I think I started to kind of pay attention to your photography then after seeing that. So I, I, I have been getting more and more into photography for the last oh, four or five years. Um, just do a lot of online courses. I've taken courses in Death Valley. Uh, super amateur still <laughs> but i try i feel like there's no su- there's can be no such thing as a lazy photographer cuz you have to get up in the middle of the night you know you have to get out there you have to just uh, to get the really good shots you have to be proactive
0: yeah, the good shots aren't at noon
3: no no that's
0: what i would say you, you gotta
3: get up early in the mornings you know in the middle of the night stay stay alert for the nice evening light, and we have fantastic we have fantastic sunsets around us in Pahrump, and fantastic sunsets just everywhere, really, in the desert. Um, so photography has been a passion of mine uh, for a number of years now, and, you know, thinking about it, I'm happy about it, um, because it allows me to still, you know, I feel like I can do this for a long time, be a photographer because, and still combine it with hiking. Now, it may not be the miles of hiking we do now, but some hiking, it allows me to be outdoors, which I love. Um, I've recently gotten into being more exposed to the small scene photography, which is just zeroing in on something. It's not the big landscape thing. It's the little things like the, I'm looking over there at, uh, I guess it's a Joshua baby Joshua but the light on the Joshua and the, yeah. the leaves on the Joshua and the needles uh, they actually call them leaves um, just the small scenes of photography the rocks in the desert the mud cracks in the desert there's so much that you can zero it on and, and that's been really fun um, exploring that kind of uh, yeah just observing I feel like being a photographer it's made me more observant of nature to look for those kinds of things, to look for the little stuff that's not quite obvious. Everybody takes pictures of the you know, the big stuff, the yeah. telescope peak, the Mount Baker, the big Mount Whitney <laughs> landscapes, and they're great. They're wonderful. But it's also fun to look for the the little things that yeah.
0: And there, there's there's a lot of little things.
3: Yeah, there is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there is there's a lot. So That's been a lot of fun uh, getting into. I've recently, well, I can't say recently, I've actually been um, a nature journaler for quite a few years now. Tried to be uh, consistent with it and do it on a regular basis, and I'm not always good at that. I've done a lot of online courses for that too, as well as in-person courses. So nature journaling, for anybody out there that doesn't know quite what it is, is... um, keeping a journal it could be daily it could be once a week it could be once a month is
0: that what's in your your lap right there yeah
3: I a little sample here Uh, of you know what you see as you either as you hike you could be hiking and journaling going to some spot and journal and again I feel like I can do this until you know I'm in my 80s or something because it it doesn't matter how far you hike. You can hike a mile. You can hike half a mile. You don't have to hike at all. You can just plop down somewhere and sit and just observe again and and ask questions as you observe. You know why is this like this? Like yesterday, um, I sat here for quite a while and looked at this Joshua tree. Which how many times have you looked at a Joshua tree? A million times. But I really tried to look at it and think about it and. I noticed the trunk, um, the leaves, the dead leaves were covering the trunk, and then there seemed to be more trunk underneath, like a regular trunk, like you would expect of a tree. So I started wondering, why are all those dead trees or dead leaves um, kind of stuck to the trunk? Are they protecting it from uh, predators? Are they helping the Joshua tree retain water, keeping it keeping the salts off of it from the desert. You know, is this how it, it survives in the desert? So there, there's questions that you ask yourself as a nature journal journaler. Uh, those questions, there's a, a, a guy named John Muir Laws, Jack Muir Laws. He's like our guru. He's the guy we follow as far as nature journalers go. And he says his um, things to think about is, you say, I notice so you notice things, and you try to be specific. Use words, numbers, or pictures when you notice something. Then you start to wonder. You wonder about things. What happened here? What is happening here? How does this work? Why is this? Why are these leaves on the Joshua? Why are the dead tree leaves on the Joshua tree this way? Why is this insect going? You know, digging this hole here. Um, Then you might connect it to something it reminds you of, something you may have learned in the past or something, some feeling you have. It's just a great way to get out in nature and um, be more observant, use an art form, and you don't have to be a great artist. Believe me, I'm not a great artist. I
0: don't know. I'm looking at the pictures in your (laughs) journal right there, and they look pretty great.
3: Oh, thanks, Steve. I've, I've... tried to become better. And, and the thing is practice, you know, as, as, as in anything, the more you do it, the better you become. So it's a combination of art. You can be as simple as you want. You can just, just do simple ink and, uh, ink drawings, pencil drawings. You can add watercolor to it, which is what I do, and a lot of people add the watercolor to it. But also the writing, and you don't have to necessarily finish what I do a lot is do the observations and do some stuff in the field. But then I didn't, I wanted to find out more about the Joshua Tree. So where do I go? Google, of course. And the Wikipedia or whatever you, what source you can and see if you can find out more. And then you make notes about that. So it's a way to really zero in. Again, it's kind of like that small scenes thing now that I think about it. You know, zeroing in on something small and thinking more about it than you would just if you were just glanced at it um somewhere so uh this summer i w- was fortunate enough to um go to uh hamilton it was actually hamilton montana outside missoula and took a nature journaling course a workshop oh did you really a three-day okay. workshop with uh a, a, a lady named roseanne hansen was the guest speaker and she's an excellent person check out her website to um find out more about nature journaling but there was a group of women there from Missoula and they had a nature journal group and they would go out as a group in different places around Missoula so I thought "Hmm, you know maybe I could do that locally in Pahrump and see how that goes I felt like it would help me because it would be uh, inspiration I guess and, and get me really keep me on track for doing it just like any hobby I guess you can fall off track and not do it as maybe as much as you want to but um and you know I thought yeah there's probably a a group that I could you know interest in this uh, project in so I checked with a couple friends and they're like yeah yeah let's do it so I belong to a hiking group or an outdoor group in Pahrump it's outdoor Pahrump and um we have a Facebook page and we um have hikes and people post a lot of photography on that, you know, local photography on that. So I asked if people would be interested and people were. We had an initial meeting and we had a few people. Since then I've started a diff- another Facebook page called, and we're, our group is called Mojave Nature Journalers, and if, you can check that out on Facebook. and. We've got a you know pretty good group now. We've only gone out now twice, and uh, we're going out. I think the day after Thanksgiving we'll be going out again. I think it's I think it's going to build. I hope <laughs> it will build. And you know it's just something that people express an interest, and in. they they're very excited about it. And and uh, I'm not teaching. I'm not I'm not teaching <laughs> anything. I'm giving ideas, showing examples of what I've done. I've taken enough classes where I feel like I know I can. In part, there's a lot of styles for this thing. You can be super duper simple. You can be fancy with your art. You can not do much art at all. You can do more writing. You can be very scientific about it. One this Roseanne Hansen that I follow, she's really gets into something called mega data in which you uh, indicate the weather, uh, you know your coordinates where you are oh, that day, uh, you know uh, wind speed and and her. It, to give her credit, I mean, her journals are amazing, and they are probably used by somebody who would need that data, you know, who would look at her journals, look at her entries and think, well, and want to know where she was that day or what her coordinates were. <laughs> but for me, you know i I like I kind of like to put like elevation, I, certainly the date where I am, the weather, you know, kind of keep it simple.
0: Uh, does that stay strictly in your book or do you put that online?
3: We do, I encourage people uh, to take pictures of their pages and post them, and well, people do, yeah, a lot of people do that. There's another group called just the Nature Journal Group, and there's some amazing uh, nature journals on there that you can look up, and so, and a lot of people, yeah, they do post their uh, journal entries online, and I've done that. But there's just a lot of different styles that you can, you know, you can be as simple as you want, start out simple. The more you do it, the better you get. Like I said, there's a lot of online, a lot of YouTubes you can look at as there are everything is YouTube. So that's, you know, I'm happy to combine nature and art. You know, I'm happy to have found this medium, I guess, that uh, uh, I feel like I can do for many, many years to come and learn from it and grow from it and uh, just become better at, at something
0: looking at your journal it's just it's beautiful
3: thank you thanks i would think nature journaling would go over big in mesquite if i active. i would think it would too uh-huh. so yeah
0: maybe i'll be bugging you about that okay
4: <laughs> yeah wandering around today and looking at all these beautiful ancient petroglyphs it occurred to teresa and i that maybe that art on the rocks was the original nature journaling. <laughs> People carved in sheep in the rocks and snakes and things that they were seeing out there in the desert.
0: Well, they didn't have that book.
4: They didn't have that book. <laughs> they didn't the have paper or, or pen, so they had to chisel on the rock.
3: Or paint on the rock, yeah. And, of course, there is volunteering. And, uh you volunteer? Yeah. No. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do that, and uh, we volunteer for um, Nevada Stewards Program, volunteer at Ash Meadows, uh, working in the Visitor Center, which we talked a little bit about. Uh, we volunteer in Canyonlands National Park as stewards for um, Horseshoe Canyon, which has some amazing uh, uh pictographs that people travel from all over the world to see
0: and you're volunteering there got me to talk about it with you and then you've noticed today two people who were on our hike today yeah. have volunteered there but they're really via you because you told me about it and i told them about it so and okay. her husband volunteer there and michelle
3: awesome <laughs> okay i knew michelle there. did but i didn't know the other okay
0: yeah, for that matter, Sharon and Mike. Um, I went out to visit them when they were there, and they were staying. They didn't stay in. I don't think you stay in the sheep herders. No, we cabin, used to, but
3: we don't anymore. Yeah.
0: So, well, they were in their, they're in their slide out, and I visited them. And I said, okay, the next morning I'm going to get up real early. I'm in my Forerunner three-star hotel. Mm-hmm. I said I'm going to get up early. You know, I'll see you guys. Yeah, but I'm going to get up early. I want to go get the sun, the sunrise over the Henrys. So I got mm-hmm. up and. Um, I leaned on my um, key fob on the emergency. So (laughs) they're sleeping probably 50 feet away from me, and there's all these other people in tents and cars and everything. And 4 in the morning, beep, (laughs) beep, beep, beep. beep. So when I got down the road, I shot them a text and said, Sorry. (laughs) Now, they may not have gotten it until they got back, but...
3: Right. Yeah. Yeah. That,
0: that's a really good place, isn't it?
3: Oh yeah, we love it there. We've been doing that for probably seven years, twice a year, pretty much. Um, we're probably going this spring again. We hope to.
0: Well, you guys are my heroes there because it's the walk down's not bad. I think it's four <laughs> miles down, but the walk up,
3: yeah to slog back through yeah. the sand, yeah, is, is it, tough. That, that canyon uh, wash there has gotten sandier and sandier. It seems like over the years. And depending on the weather, it can be, depending on the time of year, and we usually don't do it any later than mid May. Um, but it can be hot going up that. Yeah, because I think it's an 800 foot um, elevation gain as you're leaving the canyon there.
0: And so that's one week of work, and that's seven trips up and seven mm-hmm, trips mm-hmm. down. Seven trips down, seven trips back up.
3: Yeah. I figure it's like something I don't want to give up because I'm afraid, <laughs> I'm scared. <laughs> I figure if I can keep doing that, I'm good. So,
4: I think we're doing pretty well with that climb back up. Oh, you yeah, we are. Just it's awesome. Put it in low gear and just go.
3: You just go, yeah. It's a gorgeous place. If, if you haven't been there, there's um, uh, four beautiful big panels, the last one being the Great, great Gallery of Barrier um, Art, Barrier, barrier Canyon Art work. Um it's, it's unique, unique, and uh, we love it. We love going there. So we, we hike down every day and um, stay down there and just as people come, we talk to them and explain what they're looking at. And uh, it's, it's been a real joy doing that. So between that and the Ash Meadows and Nevada Stewart program, we um, come here to Gold Butte uh, two to three times a year to make sure nobody's messing with the pictographs, petroglyphs that are here. We do that for volunteering. I feel like I'm missing something. Death Valley, we work, a combination of volunteering and working for Death Valley Natural History Association. We've been hiking guides for a number of years and um, doing that and then giving our own programs. We've um, developed a history program, hiking uh, two-day hiking program for Death Valley. And a mining.
4: Mining <laughs> program about the old mining towns and some of the characters that, that were part of that. I mean, the, the history, I think, is fascinating in, in Death Valley. And, and we've also been um, trail stewards on the Pacific Crest Trail we, for a number of oh, years. Oh, did you? Mm-hmm. We, that was in Washington? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we helped mm-hmm. maintain a five-mile stretch of the Pacific Crest Trail and uh but now we decided uh, maybe we outgrown that a little bit or getting up there in age and maybe we're not young enough to be tossing big trees around <laughs> <and> running chainsaws
3: <laughs> walking 5 miles with the chainsaw yeah so uh yeah the volunteering thing as you know has been just fantastic in retirement and it kind of started really at Ash Meadows they were Let's see, they were building the new visitor center. Yeah. And I called over there. I just called to the desk. I heard about it or something that they were going to be moving from the old visitor center to the new. And I just said, you guys need any help out there? And they were like, yeah. <laughs> and that started that volunteering. And then I, I guess I found with volunteering, you have to look for the opportunities, as I'm sure you found. And there's so many out there. And so many, and what we look for obviously is the ones that are outdoors and and nature oriented and get us moving, get us hiking whenever we can. And and I
0: I always think that there's room to grow. uh And I'm sure you do, because we've had a a little talk today about um, energy Mm -hmm. and thinking outside the box. And so the volunteer opportunities sometimes aren't what we think they would be but we can make them so much better.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I mean about, yeah, I was thinking about the, the um, you know, to just get out there and, and make the calls, you know, look for the opportunities because they're definitely out there. If there's something that interests you, an area of the country that interests you, um, there are so many opportunities. Volunteer.gov is yes, um, yeah. the website that you might want to, if you're interested in volunteering, um, For uh, uh, BLM land, for, uh, yeah, um, national parks, whatever. um, That would be the website to go to to check those things out.
0: Yeah, Mm volunteer.gov.
4: One of my favorite volunteer gigs that we've done is out at Ash Meadows. And Ash Meadows has these uh, warm springs, water coming up out of the ground, and then they flow down these creeks and – coming out of the spring, and they're an endangered species of fish that live in there. And this, But the streams are all getting clogged up with cattails. And so once or twice a year, we've gone out there and crawled into these streams, waist-deep water, and it's warm. It's <laughs> very warm. And you have a special knife, and you cut off cattails, and you cut them off by the thousands, and make these big cattail rafts that you push down the stream. And I I would have never imagined that that would be something that I would do or that would need to be done uh, anywhere on the planet. But I I feel a a real joy of being in that hot water, soaking wet, but you're warm and just pushing (laughs) cattails down. And this is so... The temperature of the stream stays the right temperature for these little tiny fish called pupfish that are on the endangered species list.
0: And Ash Meadows is lucky they've got Hal, who's the biologist mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we've, mm-hmm. and I've, I've been able to do that, cut cactails out with Hal at Longstreet. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But one of my favorite times is when I was volunteering there and he had a group of um, Nevada Conservation Corps kids there who were going to get in the stream with him to do that and i think they were looking at it as this is going to because it wasn't summer i think they were looking at it as oh my god this is going to be cold we're going to be freezing (laughs) and they got in there and they were all so happy it was uh, what 93 degrees coming through there right right they all had smiles on their faces pushing those uh those cattail rafts
4: anyway so if you have a specific idea in your head of exactly what you might be doing as a volunteer let go of that and, and it's like Teresa and Steve have said think out of the box you know because there's any number of cool things you can do
0: and of course the best thing is talking to people mm-hmm. I love to talk to people that's why I got this podcast <laughs> <laughs> but you think about the people we meet while we're volunteering how many friends do we have how many Facebook friends do I have just from leading that boardwalk tour. Right. I've right. got so many yeah. at Ash Meadows.
3: Yeah. The Canyonlands one is amazing because um people really do come from all over the world there and it's on their bucket list to see that great gallery in Horseshoe Canyon and yeah, we've we've talked to people from all over the world and it's been yeah, really really fun, really.
0: Yeah, they get to get down in the canyon and see two smiley faces. Yeah, they're always
3: amazed. It's like, "Whoa, what are you doing here?" <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story about the very first time we did the Canyonlands one. We're down there, you know, waiting for people to come, and some folks came and they said, "There's a naked guy coming up the trail uh, <laughs> towards you guys," and we're like, "Oh yeah, really?" And they said, "Yeah, you know, he's but you know, totally naked," and so we're. I don't we're, know,
0: Trish. This is <laughs> this is a family show. <laughs>
3: Well, he, Go on, I'm teasing. He did. He did. By the time he got to us, he did put something on. A, <laughs> not a much. A loin cloth. Yeah. <laughs> but and he was a very nice guy. But all I could say was they didn't train us on how to handle naked guys coming approaching on the trail. You know, this was not part of what they told us to expect on this for this gig. But, yeah, it's it's always something.
0: So he went on with his long cloth and uh...
3: that was his thing. Yeah, and he turned around. And...
4: But that so. same day a woman came in with a dog, mm-hmm. which is totally against all park regulations. And uh the people we ran into were <laughs> way more upset about the dog than they were about the naked man. <laughs> and I thought that's kind of
3: interesting. <laughs> Uh, I think, yeah, that was the first time there, the first time we were doing that gig, and uh, the most challenging time <laughs> ever since, I think, between the naked guy and the dog lady.
0: <laughs> wow. So we'll wrap up now, okay. but I get to ask you the, the question that we ask all of our guests, and you can pick who goes first, but what's inspired you this week?
3: Well, it's kind of easy this week, Go really. <laughs> Just being here uh, with the light. Like I said, it's always, you are, there's always something to see. There's always a surprise. This time for me, it was the Joshua trees, I think. It's like, wow, I don't remember there being this many Joshua trees here. And it, it's amazing how many there are. And, and really looking at the beauty of the Joshua trees um, has inspired me as far as the nature journaling has gone.
4: Today, we hiked with other site stewards out here at Gold Butte. This is the first time we've ever done that. We usually just Teresa and I are here by ourselves. But today, there were 12 people, 15 people, who were also site stewards out here at Gold Butte. (laughs) What inspired me? There's no creek in Gold Butte. Where are we? (laughs) Sometimes we feel like that. I was up in Washington. Briefly up in Washington there. (laughs) But I was inspired by just everybody's enthusiasm, everybody's love of this place, and how hard they work to preserve it and keep it natural and protect this ancient art that we find out here. That's what inspired me.
0: Yeah, And you know what I like? I get to thinking about there was 12 of us or 15 of us, whatever, and everybody didn't pair up and stay together. Everybody intermingles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's no push for that. You're walking with someone different, you know, throughout the day, and you're gaining the experiences and lives of everyone else. And I, I, I really like that.
3: Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's another thing about the volunteering thing is that you just meet so many people that have the same interests as you and the same passion as you for the outdoors, and you all you're of like mind with these folks, and yes. that's really nice to see that there's a lot of us in this world
4: <laughs> so if you're out there and you're lonely and you want to meet somebody forget about those pages on facebook <laughs> and the internet dating apps and whatnot just go volunteer you'll meet the person of your dreams
0: oh, there you go because we're all like mine yeah. hey, well dave Teresa, thank you very much thank the, you steve the, thank the, you steve. it's the, been fun this is our first ever um, outdoor podcast and I must say that we're probably all starting to get a little chilly. <laughs> no, my,
3: my teeth are starting to chatter Because <laughs> the sun is sun going is down. Yeah,
0: except, except Dave, who's sitting directly in the sun. <laughs> Teresa and I have our back to the sun with a creosote bush right. cooling us. Right. Well, thank you guys. This has been wonderful.
4: Sure has. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, thanks for inviting thanks, us. Thanks, thanks for everything you do. Yeah.
0: Thanks for everything you do. And that ends another episode of The Art Box. Thanks, everybody.
2: Broadcasting from Mesquite, Nevada, in the scenic Mojave Desert, The Art Box sponsors thank you for listening. To find our next and past podcasts, find us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com, where all accompanying images and links are available on The Art Box page. Questions, comments, opinions, and concerns can be sent to artboxvv at gmail.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of its hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Virgin Valley Artists Association.